How's everybody doing this morning? Well, like Mandy was trying to say, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who might be visiting with us for the very first time. You're so welcome. Uh, We're so glad to have you here. Also, welcome to anybody who's listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on uh, on Sunday mornings. Well, you know, before I begin this morning, um, you know, many of you have been watching the news this week, and you know that on Thursday, uh, I believe it's Thursday, there was yet another uh, mass shooting that took place uh, in Roseburg, Oregon, at the Umpqua Community College. And for those of you who've been watching the continuing coverage of this, you just, if you like me, you've just been saddened and heartbroken. Um, interestingly enough, I'm just struck, as these things continue to happen, uh, I'm just struck by how less, you know, devastating they are each and every time. And regardless of what you think about gun control and all these sorts of things, I certainly agree with President Obama as he addressed the, the nation this, uh, this week. And he said, you know, our responses, our calls for prayer, our calls for support, you know, all the, this is just becoming routine. It's becoming routine. And I, you know, I just realized this week that this is yet another mass shooting, yet another group of people who've lost their life, yet another group of people whose lives will never be the same, another group, you know, a community of folks who will have to pick up the pieces and the small community will forever be defined by what happened on, you know, that tragic day Thursday morning. So, you know, we just want to join this morning in praying for that community. We know that churches all over the country, perhaps even all over the world, have, you know, Roseburg, Oregon in their thoughts this morning, and so we want to be counted among those. So would you just join me as I say a word of prayer for that community? Lord, we thank you so much um, just for keeping us safe this week. Lord, we know that those, ch- those kids and those adults uh, didn't imagine that that would be the, their last day on earth. And so, Lord, we thank you for keeping us safe and providing safety for us, Lord, but we send our thoughts, we send our prayers to the community in Roseburg, Oregon. We send our thoughts and prayers, Lord, to those who have been affected, uh, those whose family have been struck down, senseless act of violence, Lord. We just ask that you would cover them right now with your peace. And Lord, even as we learn that uh, a number of those folks were gunned down because they professed uh, that they follow you, Lord, I just pray also that you would just, um, um, I pray, Lord, that I pray for those who are reeling about that for those who are trying to make sense of how your people would not receive your protection in a situation like this. Lord, I pray those whose faith have been shaken because of this, Father, I pray that you would comfort them with your peace. Um, Lord, I pray for, for those today who might seek to turn away from you because of it or seek to not engage you because of this tragic event. Lord, I ask that you would bring their hearts comfort. You would give them kingdom understanding of who you are. And, Lord, I pray uh, even for the family of the shooter, Lord, I pray, uh, because their lives will never be the same as well. So, Lord, would you bring peace? Would you bring comfort to them as well? And, Lord, this is just the very beginning of what would be a very long healing process for that community and for those families. Lord, I pray that you would be with them. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you've been tracking with us over the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in the midst of a series that we've been calling Vineyard Values. And as many of you know this, but others of you might not, that, you know, we are not just a standalone church. We're a part of an association of churches. There's some 600 other vineyard churches in the United States and about 
1,200 or so vineyard churches around the world. And so we're a part of a broader movement, broader association of churches. And as such, like many other denominations or movements, we have our own set of values that not only govern uh, and determine how we move about and how we decide and how we govern ourselves as an association of churches, but it also helps us figure out what we do here on the local church level. It helps us determine what we teach, what we preach, who we are, how we reach out to the community. And we've been saying for the last few weeks that those things, all those things are shaped by our values, our values. We've been identifying the importance of values, and we've been sort of labeling them as the unseen things that determine the things that we actually see. Our values are the unseen things that determine the things that we actually do see in the same way that the foundation of a building is not visibly seen, but it's vitally important to the structure of the building. In the same way that our skeletal systems are not readily seen, but they are very important and um, they're very uh, necessary for the human body to operate. And so our values are these unseen things. And because we believe that values are so important, we believe that the church that you go to, their values are vitally important. And so rather than picking a church that has a nice building, although that's good, clean bathrooms, although that's helpful, you know, great preaching, wonderful children's ministry, we say that it's most important, what what, what are the church's values? What are they about? What do they believe? What are their priorities? What are the most important things to them? And so we really believe that it really matters what church you go to. And so we know that some of you are trying to figure out whether or not you're going to call this place home. Some of you will take our beginnings class in just a few uh, short weeks. Others of you have decided that this is your home, but you still couldn't really articulate well who we are or what we're about. And so this series is for you. This series is for you. And so we've been jogging through our values, uh, and we we felt that it's important to note that all of our values, all the values that we've come up with are anchored in Scripture. They're anchored in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are letting Christ shape our agenda as a church. We're letting Christ, his mission, his message determine our values. And as such, Christ dictates to us what's most important. And so we began a couple of weeks ago by talking about our foundational value, and that is the value of the theology and the practice of the kingdom of God. We focused and anchored on the message and the works of the kingdom of God. We continue by talking about our value of experiencing God, right? We don't just want to hear about him. We just don't want to talk about him. We just don't want to know a whole lot of stuff about him, but we do want to experience him. God is a God that wants to be experienced And we talked about that last week. David did a fantastic job of talking about the fact that we really value having a culturally relevant mission. That doesn't mean we just say some cool stuff and try to be cool and try to be hip. Our mission here is is we're specifically sent to this community to reach and to help the people that are here. And so we want to be present with them. We want to be flexible. We want to have a culturally relevant mission. And I want to continue this morning by talking about our fourth core value, and that is the core value of having compassionate ministry. Compassionate ministry. I want to unpack that this morning. You might say, what is compassionate ministry, and why is it so important? Well, I just want to break down those two words. Well, ministry is simply the work or service of any Christian or any group of Christians. we got a few Christians in here. Together we are a group of Christians, and so this ministry applies to us. 
But the word compassion simply means a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with the desire to alleviate it. I'll read that again. Compassion is a sympathetic consciousness. It's just not an awareness. It's just not a consciousness. It's a sympathetic consciousness of other people's distress. It doesn't stop there. It couples that awareness, that consciousness, with a desire to eliminate that distress. In fact, our English word compassion comes from the Latin word competir, which literally means to co-suffer. To co-suffer. In other words, if I see someone suffering, I'm moved to engage that suffering and to, in in some ways, make it my own. I want to co-suffer it with them, right? Before I came along, that person was suffering alone, but as I have compassion on that person, I engage their issue, I engage their distress, and compassion causes me to co-suffer along with that person. That's the essence of compassion. And so when you couple compassion with the work of Christians and the work of groups of Christians, we, together we get our desire and our need for compassionate ministry. I venture to say that everything about God's interaction with mankind through the person and through the work of Jesus could be summed up in two words. Any guesses what those two words are? Okay, you guys are saying compassionate ministry. <laughs> it's still early. I mean, it's almost noon, really, but... Can be summed up, it's compassionate ministry. This is what Jesus is all about. And so the Bible does a really fantastic job of chronicling the life of Jesus. And we know that even the four Gospels don't even begin to contain the full, you know, story and the full, you know, you know, depth of what Jesus did and all the folks that he touched. But it does a really good job of capturing some really significant snapshots. But the Gospels record many times where Jesus demonstrated power, the power of the kingdom, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, and much, much more. But what's interesting about what moved Jesus to engage in these activities, the trigger point for him was that Jesus was often what? He was moved with compassion. You see Jesus healing the sick. You see him feeding folks. You see him delivering people who are oppressed with demons. The trigger was Jesus saw a problem. He saw a need. And even in some places in scriptures, it says he was moved, moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. The interesting thing about the story uh, and the timeline of Jesus that we, if we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus had a lot of enemies, Right? A lot of people who thought that Jesus was just another charlatan, another just character coming, pretending to be the Messiah. And so he had a lot of people trying to challenge him. And oftentimes people would demand a sign. Like, if you're really Jesus, then show us this. Do this miracle. Make this thing happen. And you know what's interesting? Jesus never responded to any of that. Never responded to any of that. Never worked a miracle because somebody made a demand. Never healed somebody because somebody was trying to make him prove, you know, that he was who he said he was. And I really admire Jesus for just, you know, being comfortable in his own skin, for being confident in knowing who he was and whose he was. I really admire Jesus for that. Frankly, I don't think I could have been as mature with all of that power, Right? One of my enemies or one of the skeptics came up to me challenging me. They didn't know that I was God. They wanted a sign. I would just give it to them. I would just make it rain, snow, sleet, and then a rainbow right here. And I'd just be like, you got any more questions? 
I would just heal some random lame person just because. You got any more questions? You got any more questions? You ready to worship me now? And so I need to be more like Jesus, and Jesus doesn't need to be more like me. But Jesus never jumped through those hoops. Whenever he did a miracle, whenever he healed somebody, whenever he fed folks, he was moved with kingdom compassion. He co-suffered with people. He co-suffered with them, and he did it with the power and the presence of God. And so for that reason, we believe that everything that we're supposed to do as Christ-centered kingdom folk should be what? An earthly manifestation of kingdom compassion and love for others. What we're supposed to be about as Christians, as kingdom people, as a Christian church, as a kingdom church, everything that we should do, everything that we should do should be an earthly manifestation of kingdom compassion and love for others, whether we're praying for the sick, whether we're praying for peace, whether we're visiting folks in the hospital, whether we're sharing our resources, whether we're shoveling snow for the elderly, whether we're loving and welcoming the unlovables in our community, it all is what? An earthly manifestation of kingdom, compassion, and love for other people. We as a church, we as individuals will actively, willfully, consistently co-suffer with those that are around us. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at some examples from the life of Jesus in hopes that we can get a picture and a better understanding of what we're supposed to do as we walk this out, not just as a church, but as individuals. Uh, Who we are as a church, how we shape out as a church will depend on who we are as individuals. And so I want to talk about this as a uh, community of faith, but I also want to zero in on what it looks like for us to be this and do this as individuals. We're going to start this morning in Matthew chapter 25. I know you have your Bibles with you, so turn with me there. Some of you follow along in your phones or on tablets, that sort of thing. It's fine. Uh, We also have Bibles on the edges of the rows. Feel free to grab one of those and follow along if you like. If you don't have a Bible... Uh, to call your own, feel free to take one of those home as a gift from us to you. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to start at verse 31. Before I begin reading, let me pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for this community of faith. I thank you for this opportunity to stand before these folks and to share your good news, to share your word. Father, I pray that our hearts this morning would be a soft landing spot for the truth uh, that you want to uh, present us with this morning. Lord, I know there's plenty of things, including chilly weather outside, uh, that would compete for our attention this morning, lots of cares and stresses of the week. And Father, I just ask that we would just lay those down so that we might hear and receive from you today. Teach us what it looks like. Show us what it means to co-suffer with others, to be a compassionate ministry. Father, would you put power on these words that give me to speak this morning, move the preacher out of the way this morning, so that your truth, your light may shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 25. And so as we look at the person and the work of Jesus, as we look at the life of Jesus this morning, as we jog through a couple of important texts, it's important to understand that Jesus demonstrated compassion, or at least his value for compassion, in two significant ways And those same two significant ways will be important in our own lives. And the first way that we see Jesus, you know, showing this, that this is important, is through his words. Through his words. Through his words. I think it's really important what people talk about. 
In fact, I really pay attention to what people talk about. I especially pay attention to what people talk about just sort of when they're just, you know, just free-flowing conversation. I kind of like to eavesdrop. I hope that's not a bad thing. I just kind of like to overhear things, not sensitive things, just regular, average, everyday things. But I'm interested in what people talk about a lot. Not too focused on what people are talking directly to me about or when they're trying to impress me or trying, you know, I, I rarely tell people that I'm a pastor because I get a completely different person, you know? But I just like to talk to people and see what they talk about a lot because usually I found that what you talk about a lot are your interests, what, what you talk about a lot of the things that matter to you the most. And so it's important that when we look at the person of Jesus, we, we, we focus on what he talked about a lot, right? He talked about the kingdom all the time, but there's a handful of other things that Jesus talked about a whole lot, and one of those things was compassion. Jesus spent his life teaching, instructing people, and one of the main things that he talked about a lot, he taught about a lot, was this whole thing that we call compassion. In fact, we get uh, our sort of marching orders from him, love God, love people, right? And so we look at a passage of Scripture today that really shows how important that is, and even in an eternal, eternal sense. We look at Matthew chapter 20, 25, we start at verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne. This is Jesus talking. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And so Jesus is talking about the final judgment, right? Maybe you didn't know this, but one day, there will come a day where we all will have to stand before God and give an account for how we lived this life, how we lived on this earth. And so Jesus is explaining what that will look like. And so, verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, And you visited me, verse 37. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it unto me. Jesus continues, then the king will turn to those on the left, the goats, and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Now, this is a foundational passage for us, particularly for those of us who claim to be uh, Jesus followers, for those of us who claim to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, if there's just a couple of passages, you can only grab a couple of passages to hang your hat on, a couple of passages that will help you understand what's most important to God uh, for his chosen people, this is one of those texts. 
I know it's easy to latch on to other texts that don't require much of us, texts that flatter us and make us feel good, texts that talk to us about God's promises, but I'm telling you that this is one of the main ones that you have to print out on something and stick into your shirt pocket or tack up on the wall because this really is a very important passage. And what Jesus is telling us is that in the final days, it won't matter how many services you went to. It won't matter how big your Bible was or how, 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 how loudly you proclaimed the name of Jesus. Jesus seems to be telling us that what matters is, and what has the most eternal significance is how you lived your life relative to how you co-suffered with those who had profound needs. Don't let anybody tell you different. Don't get rocked to sleep by this new wave of teaching that doesn't really require much of us. Don't get rocked to sleep by the constant lowering of the bar. Jesus says what's most important, you will be judged for it. You will be rewarded or judged for it is how you cared for those in need. Jesus provides for us a list of needs. He says the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the stranger, the foreigner. Now, this ought to inform our politics as it relates to immigration. How you cared for, how you regarded the stranger, how you bothered to clothe the naked, how you, how you dealt with the sick. That's physically sick, that's mentally sick, that's emotionally sick. Did you visit those who were in prison? Jesus says, these things matter. He says, listen, for those of you who engage in this type of activity, come and celebrate. Enter into the beauty of eternal life. And they said, look, when did we ever help you out? Jesus says, listen, when you helped my, the brothers and sisters that had needs, you were actually helping me. When you helped the brothers and sisters that had needs, you were actually helping me. When you showed compassion, when you co-suffered with those who had profound needs, you were actually helping me. Now, what's the flip side of that? The flip side is when you ignored those who were hungry, when you ignored those among you who were thirsty, when you ignored those among you who were stranger or foreigners, those that were naked or sick or in prison. Jesus says, when you ignored those folks, you were in essence ignoring me. He said, this is a foundational teaching that Jesus teaches, and we have to do business with this text and other texts. It's another important text in Luke chapter 10. Uh, you can read this in your spare time. You can write this down if you're going to read it later. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. A guy comes up to Jesus and said, Jesus, what must I do to, inter- to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law. What does the law say? He says, I guess, love the Lord my God and then love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, bingo, you got it. He said, but Lord, who is my neighbor? And the text suggests that this guy kind of asked this question a little bit smugly. And Jesus, instead of going into that, breaking it down, Jesus instead tells him a story. Many of you have heard this story, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Where there's a Jewish man, he's walking along, he gets beaten up, overtaken by bandits. He's left in the street to die. And along comes a priest, a fellow Jew, crosses the street. Sees this guy's knee, crosses the street. Another worker from the church comes along, sees this guy, crosses the street, and does the same thing. Along comes a despised Samaritan. Samaritans had nothing to do with Jews. They despised each other. They hated each other. But the Samaritan was what? He was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. Fixed this guy's wounds, put him on his own donkey, took him to an inn, paid his bill, and even left some extra money so that 
his uh, bill could be taken care of. And Jesus poses this question to the person that asked him a question. Who was a neighbor to that man? Who was a friend to that person? And the lawyer replies, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him compassion. Now, as I preach this text often, I don't set the priest and the temple assistant up to be the villains of this story. Rather, I think that Jesus wants this despised Samaritan man to emerge as the hero of this story because he did what he was supposed to do. He showed mercy. He showed compassion. And Jesus constantly talked about this. He constantly instructed his disciples about this over and over and over. And I just feel like as a discipling community, I feel like we ought to talk about this often. We ought to talk about this often. What are we talking about? What are we teaching? What are we discussing and modeling in our small groups? What's being taught over this pulpit? What are we dealing with here as as it relates to what's important in the kingdom of God? And even as I asked myself this question, as I reviewed this message for this week, I just realized that, you know, we probably don't talk about compassion enough. Then even as I thought about this more, I sort of zeroed in on my main disciples. Some of you see them running around here, my three boys, as they run around. And I said, am I discipling my boys in compassionate ministry? Am I helping them understand that this is what's most important, that we seek needs and we show compassion? This is what Jesus talked about over and over and over and over again. But Jesus wasn't just a man of great words. Jesus was a man of action. And so not only did we see this in his words or his preaching, we also see this in Jesus' deeds, his actions. Some would say Jesus' ministry because Jesus often walked the talk. Let's look at the passage today in Matthew chapter 1. We'll start at verse 40 where Jesus heals a sick man. A man with profound needs. Verse 40 says, A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Verse 41, moved with compassion. There's that phrase again. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places, but the people from everywhere kept coming to him. Now, why did these people come? Because they heard about this miracle. Why did Jesus heal this man? Because the man said, hey, listen, I'm a rich man. I got lots of money. I can join your church. I can tithe. I know a bunch of people. We can come and make this thing happen. No, Jesus responded to a need. And so Jesus didn't just talk about compassion, but he ministered compassion. He didn't just talk a good game, but he demonstrated that this was how we're supposed to live our lives. And so Time after time in the gospel, we see that Jesus healed the sick. We see another instance in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through about 34, where Jesus encounters a group of hungry people. Anybody ever been hungry? He encounters a group of hungry people, and there's a miraculous sign. He, he feeds all of these hungry people. He multiplies bread, multiplies these loaves. He sees a need. He sees a kingdom opportunity to break in, right? 
Another opportunity, he not just ministers to the sick or the hungry, but he finds an opportunity to meet the need of somebody who's spiritually and morally bankrupt. Now, this is important. We're talking about Zacchaeus here in Luke chapter 19. Now, this is important because I'm inclined to see needs like, oh, that person is sick. Look at that person. They have a broken leg. Or look at that person. They have cancer. I'm inclined to see needs like, oh, that person doesn't have a coat or that person doesn't have any food. But Jesus also ministered and had compassion on those who had, you know, cor- you know they had corrupt morals. They had corrupt values. They were taking advantage of people. They were, they were broken. And so we see in Luke chapter 19, Jesus encounters a man named Zacchaeus. And I want to read this story. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a fig tree to see him. And since Jesus was coming that way... When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. You see, the crowd didn't like this. Zacchaeus was a scoundrel. He worked for the IRS, right? Well, you know, it was worse than that because he was cheating people, right? He's getting over on people. You people laugh when I say IRS. Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus says, Today salvation has come to your house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And you might say, well, what is going to a sinful man's home have to do with compassion? I thought we were talking about visiting sick people. I thought we were talking about clothing naked. I thought we were talking about prayer, you know, you know, eliminating needs. And, you know, I can't think of a better need than somebody who's depraved in their soul, somebody who's far from Jesus, somebody who's on their way to hell. In fact, Jesus came to earth to seek and save those who were lost. We were talking this week in our small group, and we were trying to identify those people who we seem to not think are worthy of God's message and his gospel in our time. People who have this look about them that kind of repel us when we try to engage people with the gospel. And so we went around the room, and each one of us just sort of gave a caricature of the person who we thought might not be interested or might not be worthy of receiving God's message. And if there ever was a person in Jesus' day that fit that bill, it would be a tax collector. Be somebody who would take advantage of his own countrymen, take money from the poor, and live a rich and lavish life. And so Jesus, just like he saw the sick person and healed him, Jesus, just like he saw that group of 5,000 people that were hungry and fed them, Jesus saw the spiritually and morally bankrupt, and he was moved with compassion, and he engaged Zacchaeus, and guess what happened? Salvation came to Zacchaeus' house. And as you walk through the Gospels, you see over and over and over Jesus talking about it, his words. You see over and over and over Jesus ministering his deeds... And so one of the things that we see when we see um, when we walk this out is we see the two byproducts of genuine compassion come to light. Two byproducts. When you know kingdom compassion is 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 in your midst. First is that it causes action. It causes action. And so this is important because some of us think that just because you sit at home and you watch something on TV and you feel bad, that's like, oh, that's compassion. I feel so much compassion for those people. No, real kingdom compassion, as Jesus demonstrated, 
It causes action. And so if you see something that you don't act upon, if you see a need that you don't act upon or that you can't act upon, you're not really having compassion. You may feel bad. You may feel sympathetic. You might feel a host of other feelings, but that's not compassion. Compassion moves you to do something. It moves you to action. It causes you to respond. It causes you to do something. And some of us really struggle with this. We really struggle with this because we just find ourselves not doing very much as it relates to the needs around us. And some of us are very good at taking care of the needs of our own people, right? Our family's in need. Our friends are in need. Somebody in our church that we're really tight with, hey, you know, what what do you need? What, what, What do you need? But I think our value of compassionate ministry ought to just be broader than the people that we like. It ought to move us to action in ways that stretch us, in ways that put us out a little bit. And so some of you work downtown, you walk among lots and lots of homeless people, and you never really move to action. In fact, if you grew up in a big city like I grew up in, you can get real good at coming up for reasons not to help people. Especially if you've encountered a lot of charlatans, a lot of slick people, right? You can think yourself, you know, you can pat yourself on the back for being above, you know, being played on and being manipulated. But let me tell you something that might blow your mind this morning. I think real compassion, real compassionate ministry might often put you in a situation where you're being taken advantage of. I'll let that sink in for a second. Real compassionate ministry might often put you in a position where you're being, where you, where you can be taken advantage of. Like I say, if you're like me and you grew up in the city, south side of Chicago, you prided yourself on two things, how slick you can be, how cunning, how sharp you can be, and how, 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 how able you were to not be uh, taken advantage of. In other words, you wanted to be slick, but you wanted to be able to spot somebody else being slick so they wouldn't take advantage of you, Right? And so I think that what Jesus asks us to do when we come in the kingdom is, one, stop being slick. <laughs> I didn't say stop being wise, but I said stop being slick, stop trying to get over, stop trying to, you know, manipulate, and stop trying to take advantage. But he also asks us, asks us to lay down that, that part of us. Some of us, just by nature, you have just, just developed this thing that wants to protect you from being taken advantage of. And so if you were to err on the side of something, you would err on the side, not of generosity, not on compassion, but you would err on the side of not being taken advantage of. And so the outward manifestation of that is that unless you know for sure where your money's going to go, you don't give. Unless you know for sure that this person is not going to take this and buy drugs or buy alcohol or do something other than what they unless you know for sure, then you simply won't give to that person. Now, now how many people does that, does that eliminate? Now, if you're not going to walk with the homeless guy and watch him get a sandwich, then you've simply just, I mean, you've eliminated, you know, the vast majority of people that, strangers that is, that, that might need your help. And so I'm not trying to impose this upon you, but my instinct is I need God to tell me not to give in order for me to not give to somebody in other words, if I, if, you know, when I, when I leave the house, I know I'm going to certain areas. I have my regular billfold here, and I just have a few loose dollars here because I, I want to have ready access to it because that's just the instinct that I want to have. And so uh, 
every now and then the Lord tells me this is not a good opportunity. This is not a good time. This is not, this is not something you should do. And so I just, I don't have any problem in those moments with just keeping it moving. But if you, if you demand that, Lord, you got to tell me each and every time when to give and when to help somebody out. Listen, there's a lot of variables. Your mood, your bias toward this person. Why don't you say, Lord, why don't you tell me when not to give? Why don't you tell me when not to be generous? Why, why, don't, you, why, why don't you play it that way? Why? Because compassion causes us to act. It causes us to do something. And some of us haven't done something in a long, long time. A long, long time. And so that's why we as a church, we try to make it easy. We try to make it easy to have, for you uh, as a congregation, you know, to have an easy on-ramp to compassion. And so as a growing church, we don't have a whole lot of outlets. We don't have a whole lot of personnel. And so what we do is we give a portion of our income to a place like Restoration Ministries. They run a halfway house. They run after-school programs, residential facilities for men and women to get on their feet, drug treatment, all this sorts of stuff. So our money goes a long way. In addition to that, we, we serve, we give our man hours to it. And every other Saturday, we go and we serve at Restoration. He goes, this is just plug and play. All you got to do is show up. You know, about 10 people <laughs> from our church uh, regularly go and do something at Restoration. That's not to make you feel guilty. That's not to make you feel guilty. Uh, but that is to say that we have this opportunity to serve the poor. All we have to do is show up. All we have to do is smile. And so few people in this community take advantage of that opportunity to help the poor and the broken in our community. Listen, compassion means that you do something, that you do something, that you respond, that you move to action. That's one of the byproducts of genuine compassion is that you do something. It causes action. The second is that it makes an impact, that it actually makes an impact. Lives are changed. People are helped. Discomfort is relieved in some measure. It encourages, it restores, it meets needs. And you say, Jesus, do you know, why, why is this helpful information that I should just, it's a measuring stick, for, you know, making an impact. Why is that important? Because I just found that we're just, we can just, by nature, we're just really stingy. Uh, we're just really stingy. And as stingy people, we really, some of us work really hard to just live minimums. To live minimums and to just do the, the, just the very smallest thing uh, that I can do, just the very most token act that I can do to just make me feel like I've done something. Okay, Pastor, you said, you know, compassion causes me to act. It causes me to respond. Okay, I'll do something, right? But I think real kingdom compassion has an impact. If you're moved with compassion, you choose to engage, it has an impact on the person that has that need. It has an impact on the person that is sick and suffering. It has an impact on the person that's naked or hungry or shut in. It has an impact. I don't know about you, but I found that in order for my help and my activity to make an impact, I usually have to give a significant chunk of it. And so many of us have just gotten so accustomed of doing these random things in in a way that doesn't really impact your bottom line. You give what's left over. You'll go if you have some time. You'll help if you're not, in, you know, really in a hurry. And, and listen, I found that no real impact is made. And the people in the lives around me, 
unless it costs me something that's valuable to me, unless it costs me some time when I didn't perceive that I had, unless it costs me some money that caused me to reduce what I was going to spend on myself. It doesn't really make an impact unless it's, it's costly. And so usually as I'm finding that I'm making these costly deposits in somebody else's life by way of time, by way of talent, by way of resources, there's some meaningful change happening in their life. Help arrived when I decided to engage, when I was moved to compassion, when I was, when I was moved to co-suffer. Help came, some relief came, some encouragement came, some restoration happened, some needs were met in some significant way. And so I just don't want us to get caught up in just sort of the mundane activities. Okay, I've got to do something. Here's a quarter. Here's a dime. No, really? How hey, you make an impact? You say, Pastor, do you expect me to bring the homeless guy home with me every time? I mean, do I have to do that? I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you should do that. Although I know people who've done that. I, I know a guy who uh, lives in Urbana. He was a part of our small group. A homeless guy, one of the guys in our small group, literally took several homeless guys into, their trailer, into his trailer. He lived in a double-white trailer. And one of the guys today, he's married, he has a family, and I just saw this act of kingdom compassion radically changed this guy's life. Some of you know Kelly. But I don't know that we have to do that every time, but what I'm saying to you is that kingdom compassion, it makes an impact. It makes a difference. When Jesus engaged somebody, they were different afterwards. They were different afterwards. They remembered that. It made an impact. And so the two byproducts of kingdom compassion is that it causes us to action, and our action makes an impact on someone else. And so some of you are asking today, okay, how do we respond to this? You've told us about Jesus, the things that he taught. You showed us some, uh, some, some of Jesus' uh, ministry, the things that he did. You told us about uh, how we have to make an impact and how we have to be, you know, respond. How do we respond to this? How do we walk this out? And so the first thing I'll say this morning is that we have to join Jesus. And I don't mean in some heavenly spiritual realm that's difficult to make sense of in, in an earthly way. I mean we join Jesus in his ministry. When we talk about the kingdom of God, when we talk about coming into the kingdom of God, coming into the family of faith, we say that we are here to do what? To continue the ministry of Jesus Christ. In other words, the same stuff that Jesus did when he was here, God expects us to be doing the same thing. I'll say that again. The same stuff that Jesus was doing when he walked this earth, the glamorous stuff that we like, as well as that messy stuff that we don't like that much. Same type of folks that Jesus chose to engage, you know, people with problems, people with issues. Jesus requires that we do the same. Oh, to have a church where everybody's put together, everybody's just fixed, and everybody's just happy, and they smile, and they just sort of give, and they just, you know, kids are being hugged. But the reality is we live in a broken world where people have lots and lots of issues. And so if there's ever a time and a place where we need to extend the kingdom of God, and we need to join Jesus in his ministry, it's now. 
Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 says this, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of the area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and every illness. When he saw the crowds, he had what compassion on them because they were confused and they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray for the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus goes about, he's seeing all of these people with all of these issues. They're harassed and helpless, as another version says. And Jesus says, listen, we we got this great harvest. There's all this need, but there's not that many workers. And so did Jesus pray that more people would come and join the church? He prayed that more people would come and just come and come to small group and come to the potluck. And no, he said, listen, we pray for more workers to join this harvest. Pastoring any length of time would, 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 would easily tell you that everybody that comes to church has not showed up to work in the fields to harvest. And so I would that this church grow as big as it can get. But what I really want is for more workers to come into the vineyard, for more workers to come into this place, those that would assess that there's a need, There's a great harvest of souls. There's a great need. There's lots and lots of people who need the hope of heaven, who need the help of heaven, who need to hear the kingdom message and experience kingdom power. There's lots and lots of those people who who among us will stand up and be counted and say, yeah, I'll go out into the field with you. I'll go out and harvest with you. This is the easy part. Right? This is the easy part to come here and to say, you got your Bible, you got your notes, you're going to probably tweet something out and, you know, you'll sing with us later. This is the easy part, folks. The real challenge is, is out there. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyards, often, would often say the meat is in the street. The meat is in the street. What does he mean? The, the, the real stuff of the kingdom happens outside of this building. And so Jesus Wants us to join him, join him, not meet me at church. He says, great, come to church. This is the pep rally. This is a roll call. You get your roles and responsibilities. And then we hit the street, and we, we go take care of the harvest. We join Jesus. We join him in what? In compassionate ministry. In compassionate ministry. And how do we do that? Another way we respond is we adopt a compassionate mission. Listen, what is your life about? What are you about? And before you answer, if I were really trying to get to the bottom of this, I would ask people that know you, hey, what is so-and-so about? You know, what is Yvette, what is she really about? You know, Yvette might tell me one thing, but then I ask Yvette's friends just based on where she spends her time, spends her money, what she talks about, you know, what she's up to, they might have a whole other description. I just picked on Yvette because I saw her. She's, she probably has a kingdom mission. I know I can vouch for her. But what would, what would people say your mission is? If they just had to guess. I mean, people that really knew you. People that didn't feel like they had to say something flattering about you. What would they say? What would they say your mission was? What would they say that? And so, I don't know what they would say right now, but let me tell you what they should say. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus says this about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Actually, the prophet Isaiah is saying this about Jesus, and Jesus is reading this, and it, in the scrolls, uh, the, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. 
And Jesus was saying, basically, if you want to know what I'm up to, if you want to know my mission statement, you want to know what I'm going to be about, you want to know what I'm going to be busying myself with, I'm going to be proclaiming the good news to the poor. And not just the materially poor, but the poor in spirit, those who are morally, spiritually bankrupt. I'm going to be, I'm going to be where they are. You find me, you're not going to find me in the palace somewhere. You're not going to find me tucked into some cushy office. You're going to find me among those who need me most, the poor and the broken, preaching the gospel, setting captives free. I'm going to be among the blind and the sick and the infirm. You catch me at the hospital. It's a good chance. You're looking for me. Come to where the sick people are. Come to where the broken are. Jesus says, I'm setting the captives free. The oppressed will be set free. This is what I'm about. And so how many of your, pers- your personal mission, your-, your actual one, not the one that you say, you know, the church answer, how, how-, how would your actual mission in life that's- that would be determined by how you currently spend your time, currently spend your money, currently spend your effort and talent, h- how would that mission stack up to a compassionate one, the mission of Jesus? And some of us, many of us, if not all of us, would hang our head in shame because uh, we rarely find ourselves up to this stuff. And I don't say that to condemn you today, but I say that to remind you of what we're supposed to be up to and what we're supposed to be doing. We're talking about our values. We're talking about the things that drive us. We're talking about the things that help us decide who we're going to be, where we're going to go, what we're talking about. Listen, if you want to join Jesus, you've got to adopt his mission. And his mission was a compassionate one. His mission was a co-suffering one. Where would we find you if we couldn't find you? We'd be looking for you. We couldn't find, who would we find you with? What would we find you doing? A compassionate mission. Third thing is, if you want to, um, if you want to respond, uh, join Jesus in a compassionate ministry, mission, excuse me, the third thing is to open your eyes. To open your eyes. Open your eyes. As hurt, devastation, lost people, sick people, hopeless people, all around you. All around you. They're all around you if you have eyes to see them. If you're looking for them. It's interesting, though, that we tend to find what we're looking for. And we tend to successfully avoid the things that we don't want to run into. And as Western, selfish, American Christians, we sure do a good job of avoiding people that really have needs. We sure do a really good job of avoiding those that need the hope of heaven more than ever. And so you say, okay, I'm excited. Show me what to do. No, 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 just open your eyes. Okay, where do I need to go? No, 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 don't change anything. Just go, go to work. Come back, go to school, come back. Listen, this time when you go, just open your eyes. This, this time when you go, before you go, say, Lord, show me what you're doing today. Lord, show me uh, who you want me to impact. It. Or Lord, Lord, show me those hurting and broken among. And then you go to work. Same route you take, same time of day, same train. And all of a sudden, you see the streets lined with people that need help, and you say, Lord, where did all these people come from? Did somebody just drop off a busload? And the Lord would say, those people are there every day. 
Streets lined with those who don't have enough food to eat. Every day, cubicle area peppered with people who have all sorts of problems, who need hope that you have, and that you're just too busy, you're too focused on something else to see it. All sorts of needs around you. And so Jesus would say, some of you don't need to change course. Some of you do. But others of you just need to say, Lord, show me what you're doing. God, God, show, God, give me your heart. Give me your eyes. Help me to see those around us. And I just challenge you guys to do that this week. Before you leave your house this morning, say, Lord, Lord show me. Give me your eyes today. And Lord, I, just give me the strength and courage not to look away <laughs> when I see something that might interrupt me. Give me the strength and courage to not, to not look away or try to reason it away to, to help somebody in you. Lord, give, give me your eyes today. Give me your heart, Jesus. I want to join you. I want to continue your ministry. I want to be up to the stuff that you were up to. I want to have a compassionate mission. God, give me your eyes. God, give me your eyes. Needs all around you. Worship team, you can come up. And so I dare to ask, and I don't want you to answer out loud, how do, we do, how do we do today with this? If you were to do an honest assessment as it relates to just your capacity for compassion for those who are not in your immediate family or in the immediate, your immediate sphere of folks who you easily take care of, how do, how do you fare when it comes to compassion? When you wrestle with the words of Jesus, when you wrestle with his teachings, when you wrestle with his ministry and what Jesus did, when you wrestle with the places and the people that you, Jesus routinely found himself among, how do, you, how do you fare? How do you fare? Um, I confess, as many pastors would, that oftentimes in just a day-to-day doing ministry life, we could easily be sequestered away from the people that need it most need the kingdom most, need help and healing most. And so it takes active work to live a compassionate mission. It takes active work for us as a church to engage compassionate ministry. And so here's what I'm challenging you all to do. I want you to take one step closer to being a compassionate person. One step closer to walking out and living out a compassionate mission. One step closer to joining Jesus in this kingdom effort. And some of you say, Lord, Pastor, you got to help me with that. Okay, I'll help you. Saturday morning, 945, we'll meet at Restoration Ministries, and we'll care for the poor. You say, what do I have to do? You have to show up at 945. Bring a smile with you. Bring maybe a jacket because we're going to be serving and taking groceries out to people. That's a good place to start. If you really want to engage, just bring your kids with you so they can see what we're about. So they can see the needs that are out there. And frankly, they'll see how good they have it. And they'll appreciate what they have more. And so there are other things that we can do. I mean, but many of you, even as I was talking, you've you got these things turning in your head. you got opportunities. People are coming to mind. But I would just say, as a church, I'd like us to, to, to engage this opportunity that we have with this ministry in our community here. And I would love to see as many of your faces as possible at Restoration Ministries. But we want to be people of mission. It's the value of ours to be a compassionate ministry. Would you join me in that effort? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord, for the compassion that you've shown us. 
The scriptures tell us that while we were yet in our sin, you died for us. While we were still sinning, while we're still far from you, you died for us. You were moved with compassion, and you gave us what we couldn't give to ourselves. And that's the gift of salvation, the gift of hope, the gift of eternal life. And so, Lord, for those who have been forgiven much, your word tells us that we ought to forgive much. And for those of us who've been given much, Lord, you, you expect us to give much. And so for those of us who struggle with this compassion, Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts, re- rewire us today. And for those of us who've gotten really good at preventing ourselves from being taken advantage of to the point where we just, that, that mechanism just doesn't allow us to see need and doesn't allow us to, be, to put ourselves out and to be generous, Father, I pray that you would break the power of that by your spirit this morning so that we would love and we would flow in kingdom compassion as you've been compassionate to us. Lord, give us your eyes. God, give us your heart this morning. Give us the strength and the courage to respond and obey. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.